0: This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Catholic University professor and former CIA historian Nicholas Dumovich teaches a class about national intelligence during President Kennedy's administration. He talks about the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and other covert operations during the Cold War. This episode was recorded in 2018. In this introductory course, we're continuing our historical survey of American intelligence under each presidential administration. And now we've come to the presidency of John F. Kennedy. January 1961 to November 1963. Uh, Kennedy was a formal, uh, former naval officer, so he thought he knew something about intelligence. He was also a big fan of the James Bond novels written by Ian Fleming. I've pictured him with his brother, uh, Robert Kennedy, because the brothers together had great influence on U.S. intelligence. There's a lot to say about U.S. intelligence under Kennedy, even though he served less than a full term because, of course, uh, he was assassinated by a pro-Cuban American leftist, a disturbed former Marine named Lee Harvey Oswald. At the end, I'll have some reflections about the assassination. Uh, Before we get to the main intelligence events of this administration, I want to mention a couple of other developments that they're not as spectacular, but still uh, they deserve to be remembered as important milestones in U.S. intelligence history, and they leave a legacy to this day. One of them is the President's Daily Brief, which was created for Kennedy as the President's Intelligence Checklist. When I first came to CIA in 1990, I I learned that one of the nicknames that insiders used was the Pickle Factory, they never used the company, but they used uh, the term the Pickle fact- Factory, and I couldn't figure out what it was until later I became a CIA historian and heard about the Pickle, the President's Intelligence Checklist. It was renamed, of course, uh, the President's Daily Brief, uh, and it continues to this day. Every president has used it and most have benefited from it. It was new uh, in the sense that, well, I mean, President Truman started the, uh, the tradition of CIA presenting to him a daily intelligence summary. But the pickle, and later the PDB, was the first specifically presidential product that was tailored to the president's agenda, his style, and his interests. uh, With extremely limited distribution. So this is a major intelligence legacy from the Kennedy administration. Another very important development was the creation. Uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency in October of 1961, further expanding this constellation of agencies we know as the intelligence community. Uh, as we've uh, learned in a previous class, that community uh, be- around the time of the end of World War II, comprised just the State Department, FBI, and the military branch intelligence uh, organizations. And then with CIA's creation in 1947, CIA becomes central to that uh, community. President Truman added the National Security Agency in 1952. President Eisenhower added the National Reconnaissance Office to coordinate CIA and Air Force activities regarding um, imagery from spy planes and and satellites that were coming online. And then under Kennedy, the Defense Department gets its own uh, intelligence agency. DIA today is a major national agency of the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, as we've discussed, uh, doing important work in human intelligence and also specialized technical intelligence. So I got those important developments out of the way, and I want to focus on the two biggest intelligence subjects of the Kennedy administration, which often are the two major historical episodes that people remember from this period. Uh, The Bay of Pigs fiasco, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we have a fiasco and we have a crisis. And they're both big problems. What they have in common is, obviously, Cuba. Otherwise, they are vastly different kinds of problems. The Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco was a CIA covert paramilitary operation, specifically a regime change operation that went very badly. The Cuban Missile Crisis, by contrast, was a confrontation of superpowers, the United States and the USSR, over nuclear weapons. What the two big problems have in common, other than Cuba, is that both largely were the result of shortcomings in American intelligence. In both situations, bad intelligence analysis was at work. The Bay of Pigs operation was an example of faulty covert action planning, to be sure, Uh, But that includes some seriously flawed analysis, as we'll see. Likewise, the Cuban Missile Crisis begins with bad analysis, but in the context of intelligence collection, both human and technical. In both situations, the intelligence shortcomings were made worse by executive decisions, by policymakers. And the two crises also are are alike in that the IC learned a lot from the mistakes of, uh, of them both. So let's turn to the Bay of Pigs. Revolutionary leader Fidel Castro turned his insurgency against the Cuban dictator Batista into a government. When he ousted the dictator uh, in early 1959, this is during the Eisenhower administration. We're dropping back just a bit for context. Castro quickly declared himself a communist, aligned with the Soviet Union. And this presented to the Eisenhower administration a more dire situation than what they faced in Guatemala uh, a few years before. Eisenhower wanted something done about Castro. The CIA proposed covert action to destabilize the Cuban economy with economic sabotage. Eisenhower said he wanted something more drastic. Now historians disagree on whether Eisenhower meant that CIA should assassinate Castro. To CIA officials at the time, it seemed clear to them that Eisenhower, who clearly would not use words out loud like assassinate and murder. It's still clear to these CIA officials that Eisenhower really wanted Castro removed from the scene by whatever means necessary. Just as they believe that Eisenhower had expressed the desire that an African leader, Patrice Lumumba, uh, be removed, killed if necessary, to prevent the Congo from going communist. Um, There's no smoking gun on either. Uh, on whether Eisenhower really wanted them assassinated. Now Eisenhower was concerned about Castro for the same reasons he had authorized CIA to topple the uh, elected government of Guatemala in 1954. He believed that once communism was established in the Western Hemisphere, it would spread by Soviet supported subversion and revolution and this is what as history teaches us, this is what communist governments do. I did my dissertation on the revolutionary government of Grenada, 1979 and 1983. And there you have the communist Grenadians being helped by the communist Cubans in order to spread um, communist revolution to other island nations in the Caribbean. So that example from the 80s shows that in the 1950s, Eisenhower was onto something. He was right. This was a threat. So Eisenhower authorized CIA to plan covert action to remove Castro from power. Now at this point, I want to remind you of our discussions in this class about um, covert action as an intelligence function. The purpose of US covert action is to um, influence political, economic, military conditions abroad in in such a way that the hand of the United States is not apparent, the involvement of the US government is not evident to people, or it can be denied plausibly denied. The original CIA plan for Cuba uh, under Eisenhower was to infiltrate some 30 Cuban agents, CIA-trained agents, to create resistance groups within Cuba. I think someone noticed that Cuba is a real big place. Uh, It doesn't really stretch from Washington uh, past Chicago. Uh, It's obviously located south of Florida. You can see how big it is here. And so the plan quickly grew. From 30 to about 500 CIA-trained Cuban exiles would infiltrate the country and link up with the anti-Castro forces that were believed to be operating in Cuba. CIA propaganda efforts, including a clandestine radio station, this is all on the Guatemala model, would help build internal Cuban support for opposing Castro And this is where it helps to have a knowledge of history, um, even when you're planning a covert action. Um, Essentially, CIA was using the example of its predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, sending agents into Nazi-occupied France, where the population didn't like the Nazis and was willing to take risks to support uh, these, uh, these commandos, these covert action operatives. Um, CIA remembered that and remembered the positive aspects of the 1954 Guatemala operation. Uh, and you're, in your reading, Professor Christopher Andrew points out that Eisenhower and CIA ignored other relevant historical precedents including the negative lessons of Guatemala. Guatemala barely succeeded even against a weak and hapless government. That basically lost its nerve uh, and allowed a success for covert action there. Uh, They ignored the lessons of the hike operation in Indonesia, uh, where the people that we were helping in their military rebellions turned out to be weak and ineffectual. Uh, I would add that they also ignored the lessons of many covert action uh, operations involving the insertion of ethnic agent teams trained by CIA into places like China and the USSR. Uh, These showed, again, if somebody had been paying attention, these showed that fully three-quarters of these teams were caught. Um, The principle was established uh, but not really acted on that you're going to lose three quarters of your penetration agents. You send them into uh, denied areas, uh, and they also demonstrated that estimates of local opposition to communists was usually overinflated. So CIA started infiltrating, and by the way, the on the bottom right there, those are CIA trained Tibetan commandos, getting ready for an airlift into uh, Chinese-occupied Tibet. So CIA started infiltrating a few Cuban agents into Cuba, and soon found out that there really wasn't an underground resistance. And most of their penetration agents were caught, which again, history might have taught them if they'd been paying attention to it. But instead of recalculating, or rethinking the whole plan, CIA shifted its plans instead to an amphibious landing of some 700. Notice the mission creep here. We start with 30, 500. Now we're up to 700 trained Cuban exiles that we're going to land by landing craft and paratroop penetrations, establish a beachhead, relocate to the mountains, become a resistance force, attract anti-Castro Cubans, declare themselves to be the legitimate government of Cuba, and wait for US support. Sounds pretty neat. Now as the planning went on towards the end of the Eisenhower administration, the force kept getting bigger in the planning to ensure that when the landing happened, that they could actually seize and hold a beachhead. Now, when Kennedy came into office in January 1961, the planned Cuban invasion force had doubled to about 1,500. So again, 30, 500, 700, 1,500. They would be supported by a rebel Air Force, again, trained uh, Cuban exiles, pilots um, of B-26 bombers, which were in the Cuban inventory. Uh, we, CIA had its own B-26s that were painted to look like Cuban Air Force uh, bombers. So this, the story would be that these were Air Force, Cuban Air Force officers who defected and then joined the rebellion. The Cuban invasion forces were trained at CIA bases in Nicaragua and Guatemala. The invasion was planned, originally, I I saw in the CIA declassified documents, this was the preferred plan to land at the beach at Trinidad. This was considered an anti-Castro town, again, looking for that local support. Uh, It had a good port, Uh, it had a defensible beach with good uh, maritime approaches. And was close to the mountains. Uh, A key mistake in planning for this covert action was that for operational security, CIA's own intelligence analysts were kept in the dark. The experts on the current experts on the state of Cuba. They had no input. The Directorate of Operations did its own analysis and based its optimistic assessments of internal Cuban resistance uh, on the initial opposition to Castro when he came to power in 1959. Well, it's two years later, and the analysts of the Directorate of Intelligence, the DI analysts, could have told the DO that things had changed, that uh, Castro had a lot more support, that the internal security was ruthlessly efficient, and that There was essentially no opposition to him. Even the deputy director for intelligence, the head of the analytic branch, a man named Robert Amory, uh, was not informed. I mean, he knew what was going on, but uh, he was not consulted, even though he personally had participated in the Pacific campaign of World War II in more than two dozen amphibious landings uh, of this scale more, a lot more than the uh, Marine, the US Marine, that they had brought in to plan the operation, Colonel Jack Hawkins. Amory and all of his analysts were simply cut out for security reasons. So some security. This is a uh, January uh, 10th, 1961, front page, above the fold, New York Times article. US helps train an anti-Castro force at secret Guatemalan air ground base. Not secret anymore. So another mistake was that this covert action was no longer covert with this kind of publicity. Um, Cuban exiles now, the world knows, are being trained, probably by the US, in Guatemala for an attack on Cuba. How yes? That? Like how did uh, the New York Times- uh, various sources. Uh, when you engage in a large operation, unless you have operational security that's very tight, people talk. Uh, this happened with the Albanian operations in late 40s and early 50s. Various other operations, the Chinese operations that we mounted in the early to mid 1950s. Uh, when you get people together, they will talk. And Castro is knows something is up, even before this, he's trying to penetrate these operations with his own people. You hire a bunch of Cuban exiles. How many of them, are are 100% of them anti-Castro? Or has Castro sent one or two penetration agents in? It's good counterintelligence. So a very good question. So multiple sources. And and it gets worse. I'll, I'll get to that. So another factor in the planning that turned out to be a mistake was a requirement That Castro's Air Force be destroyed first. So that the Cuban exile pilots in their CIA-provided B-26s, pretending to be Cuban Air Force, um, would have command of the air. That was a requisite, that was prerequisite for the success of this operation. Um, CIA recruited some help. They recruited pilots from the Alabama National Guard to assist. There was to be one air attack two days before D-Day, before the amphibious landing, allegedly by these Cuban Air Force pilots who were disgruntled and decided to shoot up their own planes. Uh, and that's why these, uh, the CIA's B-26s were painted to look like Cuban Air Force planes. The day before the invasion, the B-26 uh, uh... exile force would come uh, back to cuban air bases to destroy any planes that remained. so two air strikes command of the air was essential and this was one of several things that had to go well for the su- success of this operation yet another problem came from president kennedy's desire to maintain deniability that the u.s. had nothing to do with this you know we didn't like castro but these are independent patriotic Cubans acting on their own. A month before the invasion, he ordered another landing site be found, away from the town of Trinidad, its populated center, You know, uh, people will find out early. You know, This is long before the internet, but they might take pictures. It'll be too noisy. CIA had four days to shift all of its planning to another location, and they uh, found it at the fairly remote Bay of Pigs which is on this map here, obviously, All right. away from populated centers, but closer to Havana, closer to the Cuban military and Air Force. Um, also, it was surrounded by swamps. Um, let me go to that slide. There we go. The Zapata Peninsula gave this uh, relocated operation its name, so this became Operation Zapata. Again, Bay of Pigs surrounded by the Zapata swamps. It's far away from the mountains, where you hope the exile force will be able to uh, melt away into to become that beacon of freedom for uh, large numbers of disaffected anti-Castro Cubans. That's the theory. Unknown to the planners was the fact that the Bay of Pigs was actually Castro's favorite place to go fishing, snorkeling, vacationing. He knew it very well, which really helped when he arrived on scene to help def- lead the defenders. Also unknown was that there were coral reefs and rocks that complicated navigation. Uh, the operations planners had looked at the imagery and concluded that those, uh, that, that darker water, were uh, that was seaweed. Well, no, there were coral reefs. That's why Castro liked to go snorkeling there. It's a good place to go. Um, let me read to you a couple um, newspaper reports from the day. This is uh, Dateline, uh, New York, April 10th. So this is a week before the invasion. And it's uh, Alastair Cook is writing for the Guardian of the, of the United Kingdom. Mystery of coming invasion. Another three hour harangue from Castro in Havana last night has failed to clear up the mystery of the coming Cuban invasion. Who is training it? Where it is to be mounted from? Whose is the dominant power in exile? And what the United States administration is going to do about it? Um, Also in the Guardian that day was an editorial. Since President Kennedy came to power, he has done much to restore American prestige in the uncommitted world. But if recent reports of a projected invasion of Cuba launched from American soil and carried out with the connivance of the American intelligence service, come true, then much of President Kennedy's labor will have been in vain. Um, No one will believe that a group of Cuban exiles, however burning their grievances, could assemble a force of sufficient size and with sufficient equipment unless they had the backing of the American government. Uh, Dr. Cardona, the leader of the anti-Castro Cubans, has denied that the Central Intelligence Agency is implicated in his plans. This may be true, but reports from authoritative American sources suggest that it is not. Um, Richard Bissell, the, uh, the head planner uh, for the operation, said in 1967, a few years later, we didn't realize the extent to which it was believed by everyone, everyone else that this was a U.S. government operation. Apparently, CIA wasn't reading the newspapers. Um, I'm being uh, critical of my former agency because it deserves to be criticized (laughs) on this. Um, So on April 15th, 1961, two days before the invasion, the first wave of air attacks by six B-26s, fewer than planned for, uh, damaged many Cuban planes on the ground but failed to destroy them all. The attacks alerted the Cubans that it's coming, Got the attention of the United Nations, where the UN ambassador Adlai Stevenson uh, found himself to be lying uh, about US non-involvement in uh, this operation. Kennedy, President Kennedy, had ordered the first airstrike to be smaller than planned for. Uh, and then he canceled the second planned air strike. CIA was afraid to recommend, at that point, that the invasion be canceled, even though Everyone knew, at least on CIA's side, that without command of the air, the invasion was doomed. They're afraid to give that kind of um, bad news, which is, if you think about it, is, is uncharacteristic. I mean, intelligence is in the bad news business. But this is a case where uh, they call it falling in love with your operation. They'd all fallen in love with it, and were not willing to end it at that point. Okay, when the invasion force arrived on April 17th, it faced a fully mobilized Cuban military with command of the air as well, Castro on scene, effectively directing the defenses. His forces quickly disabled the two supply ships. uh, A landing craft that made it ashore put a small exile force onto the beach where they fought valiantly for three days. Kennedy refused CIA's requests to have US Navy aircraft provide combat support. Uh, combat air support. Two CIA chartered airplanes from the uh, Alabama Air National Guard dropped munitions and supplies on the beach for the rebels, but those were shot down. The four pilots uh, between the two aircraft uh, died. They are stars on CIA's memorial wall. Uh, Brigada 2506 surrendered and about 1200 survivors were taken captive, taken prisoner. So It's a debacle. Afterwards, this was humiliating for the United States government and personally for President Kennedy. It was a great victory for Fidel Castro. And there was a lot of uh, bitter recriminations and finger pointing going on. Kennedy's advisors and pro-Kennedy historians ever since have placed all the blame on CIA for its mistaken assumptions in planning, for deceiving the president about his chances for success. And on the other hand, CIA people at the time, and CIA's defenders ever since, but not me, uh, have admitted that there were planning errors, but insist the invasion could have been successful if it had been allowed to work as planned. You know, it's failure, they say, is Kennedy's fault for canceling that second airstrike, for refusing U.S. military support. He's blamed for moving the landing site, and even for liking covert action too much. The chief CIA planner, again, was Richard Bissell. He was a brilliant man, uh, who also was the project manager for the U-2 aircraft, and also the follow on, the Um, A-12. He and director Alan Dulles uh, had to resign. In his memoirs, Bissell says, I sincerely believe that even with the plan's faults, as long as we were able to move ahead with the airstrikes and destroy Castro's air force, the brigade would still win the day, at least to the extent of establishing a beachhead. And then what? It is also possible, he, said, he wrote, that we in the agency were not as frank with the president about further deficiencies as we could have been. So there's a telling admission. There was an internal report by the inspector general, CIA Lyman Kirkpatrick, saying that If CIA had been more careful in its planning, it would have realized that there was no effective organized resistance to the Castro regime that could have rallied to help the invaders. Castro's forces were firmly in control of Cuban society. They vastly outnumbered any invasion force, and the terrain offered no help at all. He said that CIA should have canceled the invasion, canceled the operation, even though it would have been embarrassing to the agency. He said cancellation, yes, would have been embarrassing, but it would have averted failure, which brought even more embarrassment. Carried death and misery to hundreds. Destroyed millions of dollars worth of US property and seriously damaged US prestige. He was right about that. There was an internal rebuttal to the inspector general's report. Uh, the Directorate of Operations said the airstrikes were crucial to success. Without them, there could be no success. The defeat was attributable to a long series of Washington policy decisions. So, there you have a f- fairly common situation. Something goes wrong, something big goes wrong. The intelligence folks blame the policymakers, the policymakers blame the intelligence folks. Uh, Thus was fulfilled the ancient saying in Washington there are no policy failures, there are only policy successes and intelligence failures. Now, my view is that there's plenty of blame to go, wrong, uh, go around. I think the um, historical record shows that there were plenty of failures on both sides. Uh, for intelligence people, I think there are some clear lessons from the Bay of Pigs. The policy people can come up with their own, but for intelligence people, you know. One of the lessons learned is do not plan for a covert action or any kind of intelligence operation, uh, clandestine collection, human intelligence, technical intelligence, that requires every part of it to go perfectly for any of it to succeed. Secondly, do not undertake covert operations that have already been described in the New York Times. Third, make sure your agency's experts are involved in the planning, the ones who know the most about the area you're going into. If they are not cleared for the project, well, you should damn well clear them. Do not be afraid of communicating clearly to the policy people the risks and consequences of failure of every part of the plan. And this takes courage, but... Intelligence people should be prepared to stand down and walk away from any operation that does not make sense operationally or even politically. Remember, the policymaker may want deniability more than the conditions you've established for success. On the policy side, there were huge implications. US prestige was damaged, to be sure. The Soviet Union tried to take advantage. The Soviet premier, Khrushchev, concluded that Kennedy was weak and indecisive, and so demanded that the Western powers abandon Berlin. Uh, As you know, at the end of World War II, Berlin was divided into East and West uh, between the Soviet Union uh, and the Western Allied powers. Uh, Khrushchev said that West Berlin was a threat to uh, East Germany. Kennedy himself blamed CIA for putting him into that position. He briefly considered um, breaking up CIA into its various uh, missions or business areas and distributing it throughout the government. Um, That was uh, justifiable anger on his part, but he got over that. He also considered replacing Alan Dulles with his own brother, Robert. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy liked working with the agency, but he was a uh, uh, savvy enough politician to realize that uh, that wouldn't work very well. Uh, it's not really career enhancing for politicians to um, be CIA director. So he turned that down. Now, just a few months uh, after the uh, Bay of Pigs uh, debacle, Kennedy is meeting with the Soviet premier in Vienna at their summit. Khrushchev berated Kennedy for American imperialism and said, the Soviets are going to get tough regarding Berlin. Um, In August, this is four months after the Bay of Pigs, the East Germans, acting on orders from Moscow, um, erected the Berlin Wall, cutting off East Berlin from West Berlin. The communists called it the anti-fascist protective wall, but it was really meant uh, to prevent East Germans from escaping to freedom in the West. Uh, Again, it's what communists do. The US considered this an illegal act, but did not risk war to stop it. Kennedy, however, renewed the US commitment to the freedom of West Berlin. And Khrushchev, uh, having built the wall, he backed down on any further threats. Uh, This became yet another Cold War standoff. Khrushchev, however, was looking for a way to advance the Soviet position. Uh, in the Cold War, uh, some sort of fait accompli, a surprise move that would change the strategic balance in Moscow's favor. As we all know, and this is the (coughs) accelerated history of that, he did that by putting Soviet missiles in Cuba secretly, believing that by the time the United States discovered them it would be too late for the Americans to do anything about it. But as you know, the U.S. government did discover them, discovered them early. Kennedy told Khrushchev to take them out, or else, after some tense days, Khrushchev backed down. Nuclear war was averted, and Kennedy was the hero, only to be tragically cut down by an assassin's bullet a year later. And that's the history most people remember. And, by and large, it's true, but, and it's highly dramatic. <clears throat> but this dramatic story is largely an intelligence story. It begins with a Soviet military intelligence officer who volunteered to work uh, and provide intelligence for CIA and the British service, MI6. Oleg Penkovsky's intelligence began as the Bay of Pigs operation was ending. And he continued as an espionage asset well into that summer of 1961 as Cold War tensions are mounting. He was a well-placed colonel in the Soviet military organization called the GRU, G-R-U. He reports on what he learns in meetings about Soviet strategy towards the US. He photographs secret Soviet military documents, including probably the most helpful one, this R2 missile manual in translation here. Uh, The R2 is a medium range ballistic missile, MRBM, uh, of the Soviets. He passes these things to CIA and his uh, his CIA and MI6 case officers. He provides high-level Soviet policy papers. He even tries to warn the U.S. ahead of time about that the um, Berlin Wall is going up, but he can't do so in time. Above all, he conveys his impressions that the Soviet leadership is not as confident as they appear. They are blustering from a position of weakness, and they know it. They worry about provoking the US to war. They know they do not have strategic superiority in nuclear weapons. The, uh, nas- the uh, national intelligence estimates at the time, uh, the US national intelligence at the time assessed that the Soviets had far fewer nuclear missiles than they were claiming. It was bluster. And then Khrushchev backs down on Berlin, and this seems to confirm Penkovsky's intelligence. At the same time, Penkovsky says, Khrushchev might do something desperate. CIA gave Penkovsky uh, the code name, Hero. Uh, his, all, the vast documentary uh, intelligence that he provided uh, was marked with the code word, ironbark, And then the uh, oral debriefings he gave, uh, that was the Chickadee intelligence. And this is this is what we do. We, we give multiple code names to mask the uh, source of this intelligence. Uh, Colonel Kuklinski, who spied for CIA in uh, 1970s, his uh, code name was Gull, and the intelligence from him was called Chrysanthemum. So meanwhile, the, the Kennedy brothers, the president and the attorney general, are pressuring CIA to do something about the Castro regime. Bay of Pigs was embarrassing. It looks like they want revenge. They they don't like being humiliated. They liked covert action. Christopher Andrew mentions that they approved that President Kennedy approved more covert action operations than even Eisenhower, and they especially liked covert action against Castro. Infiltration of agents, propaganda, sabotage, and though it was never mentioned out loud, assassination plots. The code name for all these efforts is Mongoose. Uh, mostly plans to destabilize the Cuban government, but it includes some uh, ideas about how to kill Castro. At CIA, there's a leadership change. The um, leadership fallout from the Bay of Pigs falls squarely on CIA. Uh, President Kennedy told uh, Director Dulles, if this were a parliamentary system, I'd have to resign. My government would fall. But it's not, so you have to leave. Um, Dulles was allowed to retire uh, for his own dignity a few months after the Bay of Pigs in November of 61. His replacement is uh, John McCone, one of the great CIA directors. The agency at this time is monitoring Soviet shipment of weapons to Cuba so Cuba can defend itself against another invasion. U-2 flights over Cuba begin in February of 1962. McCone in that summer of 62 first raises a possibility that, you know, Moscow might send missiles to Cuba. McCone grasps that Moscow might make this bold move in order uh, to put ballistic missiles into Cuba to overcome its strategic inferiority in missiles and bombers. At the end of August, the U-2 imagery shows that there are surface-to-air missile sites in Cuba, SAM sites. Surface-to-air missiles meant to bring down aircraft. McCone is alone in the US government in believing that they wouldn't do this unless they're defending something important from aerial attack. And perhaps that something would be ballistic missile sites. And also to shoot down reconnaissance aircraft so the Americans won't find out about it. So they would be blind over Cuba. So what does the Kennedy White House do? The SAM sites spooked them. The Kennedy administration orders a moratorium on flights, severe drawdown. It allows only three flights in September, all of them over uh, eastern Cuba, away from the known SAM sites. Um, That month of September, two things happen. There's a special national Intelligence Estimate. We talked about analytic products. The SNE, Special National Intelligence Estimate, authored by Sherman Kent, the head analyst. Um, He says that it would not make sense for the Soviets to place strategic missiles in Cuba because it's too risky. Now, when we had discussed analysis, we had talked about cognitive challenges to analysis, cognitive biases and mindsets, and we discussed how a big one among them is mirror imaging, this idea that the other side is going to reason and figure out things like we would. So this is an example, a classic example, of mirror imaging. At the same time, uh, Director McCone goes on leave. Um, He was a widower, and he was recently remarried, and he took his honeymoon in the south of France. But whenever a, a CIA director travels, you've got communications with you, and he's sending cables back to CIA saying, you've got to press the White House for permission to send U2s over those SAM sites. Figure out what's going on. What are they protecting? He has no evidence. It just makes sense to him. From September into October, there's a five-week period in which um, practically no U-2s fly, the ones that do stay away from the SAM sites. Um, They're largely on the periphery of Cuba, uh, even though McCone is making these uh, appeals. Meanwhile, there's human going on, human intelligence, espionage uh, assets in Cuba Are telling CIA they they see uh, there's some mysterious secret work going on in western Cuba, including some of them see long cylindrical objects being towed by military trucks. Okay? McCone insists, and Kennedy allows, a single U 2 flight over the San Cristobal area of western Cuba on October 14th, going straight across the island. from south to north. That would be um, this flight here. And it discovers, in plain sight, uh, an MRBM site. Remember, medium range, ballistic missile. Um, Kennedy then authorizes unlimited U-2 flights. Uh, The recent book called uh, Blind Over Cuba uh, shows that the Kennedy administration apologists and friendly historians ever since have uh, blamed CIA, or the bad weather, for this uh, five-week gap in effective uh, overhead imagery collection, uh, when in fact it resulted from White House policymakers. So the Cuban Missile Crisis begins with an analytic failure, that SNE, that estimate, And a collection failure caused by policy. And then you have a collection success. The U-2 sees what's there. Um, And using uh, also Penkovsky's intelligence, human intelligence, the analysts are able to warn Kennedy about the situation. Uh, I want to point out to you on the previous slide that um, this is a Soviet SAM site, which um, has a distinctive Star of David kind of pattern in it. Um, Over the next week, U-2 flights provide imagery that identify 24 medium range ballistic missile sites, MRBMs, have a range of about 1,000 miles, and also intermediate range ballistic missile sites. Uh, and they have about a 2,000-mile range, roughly. Penkovsky's intelligence on the Soviet MRBMs uh, gives the president some indication of how long it would take to make these things operational. Uh, Kennedy has the time to deliberate instead of simply to react. The initial um, impulse on everyone's part is, well, we've got to take these things out militarily with a strike. Uh, but upon deliberation, He decides to impose a naval blockade and use hard-nosed diplomacy, tell the Soviets to get the missiles out. And it's a good thing he decided on the blockade rather than uh, uh, attacking Cuba, because it was revealed years later in 1990 that Soviet forces in Cuba actually had tactical nuclear weapons that they would have used against an American attack. So that's good. Um, Thankfully, the Washington Post got it wrong about the invasion of Cuba. New York Times got it right regarding a naval blockade. Kennedy goes on national TV on the 22nd of October, announces his situation, declares the blockade, makes it clear that any missile attack from Cuba would be considered an attack from the USSR and would be answered. The naval blockade over the next 12 days uh, of the crisis uh, works. NSA intercepts confirm that Soviet ships are turning uh, back. U-2 imagery is used publicly at the UN to embarrass Moscow, who denied that such work was going on. The Soviets back down. Imagery intelligence and signals intelligence monitor the removal of Soviet missiles from Cuba Uh, during the crisis. A U-2 was shot down, Kennedy refuses to escalate, um, and instead he responds to Khrushchev's proposal that in exchange for removing the Soviets, removing the missiles, the US pledges not to invade Cuba. So Cuban Missile Crisis comes to a satisfactory ending, which means the world did not end. It's good. Uh, But the Kennedy brothers' obsession with Castro continues. Uh, the momentum continues to pressure CIA to, to get rid of Castro. So a senior CIA official met with a Cuban agent in Paris on the 22nd of November, 1963, to give him poison to kill Castro. Of course, that was the day that Kennedy was in Dallas and was killed. In the time we have left, I want to address... Um, the all-too-popular story that Kennedy's assassination in Dallas was the result of a CIA operation uh, or conspiracy to kill the president. Um, My bottom-line opinion, it's a myth. It's a canard. It's a lie. Um, It is logically almost impossible to prove a negative, but I'm quite confident that CIA did not kill Kennedy. It's quite a widespread story. I don't know how many books are out there making this assertion, probably hundreds, maybe lots more. I do know that if you Google you know, Kennedy assassination, CIA, you get almost 3 million hits on Google. Um, it has its own Wikipedia article. I'm not going to go into all the aspects and variants of the theory, because there are It's it's way too complicated and simply not worth our consideration. What I will say is this. The idea that CIA would murder an American president, to me as a citizen, is simply unimaginable. And as a career CIA officer, it's monstrous and obscene in the highest degree. This is an extraordinary claim that requires a burden of proof based on persuasive evidence. Uh, the so-called evidence I've seen is all infer- inferential, highly speculative, not persuasive. And I'm sure I'll hear from the conspiracy theories about, theorists about this. The alleged motives don't convince me either. As a CIA staff historian for 11 years, I find it implausible in the extreme. Uh, Good scholarship over the years has shown that CIA always, without exception, has considered itself to be the president's agency and has done his bidding. Yes, Robert. What would lead, like, the natural conclusion for people to just say, oh, it was CIA, like, with as much support as there was with, you know, books being released and protests or, you know, whatever the picture depicts, like... Why would people believe, like, oh, it was obviously CIA? Like, that seems like a ludicrous idea to just kind of get that much support around. I'm not a psychologist, uh, certainly not a popular psychologist, but uh, I think people want to believe that there had to have been a conspiracy, that this 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 punk could not kill the president of the United States without help. Um, I mean, we could go more in-depth as to, uh, you know, some of the milestones in this theory, one of which was the movie JFK by Oliver Stone, which came out in the 1990s, which was done very skillfully, propagandistically, uh, to show a CIA conspiracy. And after that film comes out, you have, at one point, a majority of Americans polled believing CIA did it uh, based on a movie. it had political implications. Uh, you had the uh, Congress passes the JFK Act, which requires CIA to declassify everything it has. It could be related to the uh, Kennedy assassination. Um, as I was saying, the, 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 the agency has always considered itself to be the president's instrument, no matter what was going on, whether there are intelligence failures, uh, debacles like the Bay of Pigs, budget cuts, signs that the Cold War is thawing, all of these are alleged motives. The silliest one, among the silliest, is that CIA killed Kennedy because he planned to remove the U.S. from Vietnam. Um, the reality is that CIA wasn't really an of operating in Vietnam. Maybe the silliest is that the agency was doing the bidding of the Vice President, Lyndon Johnson. Or even sillier is that Johnson had it done because he was controlled by CIA, which is nuts. Um, Another is that Kennedy actually wanted to stop CIA from trying to kill Castro, against all evidence. And CIA didn't want to stop. (laughs) Now, the real CIA at the time, the agency I know from years of study of CIA internal documents, oral history interviews, memoirs, memoranda, and so forth, Is literally the last group of men and women on the planet who would even consider doing such a thing. The most insulting thing I've seen is a uh, claim that secretly uh, that CIA recently put a star on the memorial wall for Lee Harvey Oswald, one of ours. Uh, I was a historian responsible for the memorial wall. I find that funny and insulting and frustrating all at the same time. Yes, I know on the Internet you can find YouTube interviews with men claiming to be the CIA assassin, deathbed you know, confessions. You can also find claims about CIA's uh, cover-up of extraterrestrials in Area 51, Roswell, uh, CIA's experiments in time travel and teleportation, and none of those are real either. Sorry to disappoint you. The people who believe these things are sadly mistaken, and and many of them are nuts. Um, The sad thing is that the conspiracy theorists, the true believers, will just say, I'm part of the conspiracy. Of course he would say that, Uh, which will come as a surprise to anyone who knows me. Unfortunately, we live in an age in which logic and evidence gives way, I will say, is trumped by uh, assertion and identity. If you want a good, reliable source that refutes this idea, this theory, you can Google the name of Max Holland. Holland like the Netherlands. Max Holland, uh, an independent researcher who has been following this for years. I exhort all my students to treat everything with due skepticism, including what I teach you in class. Check everything on the basis of solid evidence, sound sound reasoning, and good and reliable scholarship. And for heaven's sake and for your own sanity, ignore this cacophony of loud voices who make assertions and say they must be true because there are a lot of them or because of the identity of the person making the assertion. Now, I fully admit that I could be accused of hypocrisy here because I'm making an assertion about CIA non-involvement. I don't have persuasive evidence because you can't prove a negative, And I'm asking you to believe it because of who I am. <laughs> In intelligence, relationships are everything. So on this, I'm asking you to trust me because that's the best we can do. So uh, that brings us to the end of our treatment of Kennedy and intelligence. Uh, are there any other questions on Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis, the other thing we mentioned? Uh, Jeremy, yes? So in the last class you mentioned the presidential finding that is published to the Gang of Eight, the memo, memo of notification. Right. Was any of that in place at the time of the Bay of Pigs, and how Very did good happen? question, yes. Our discussion about covert action as a function of intelligence was as of now, or as, uh, the recent developments. The requirement for a finding comes from the late 1970s. The uh, the most recent law on this, um, uh, which was one of the Intelligence Authorization Acts, I think it was 1997, all that gets uh, into the Title 50 of the U.S. Code. At the time of the uh, Kennedy uh, administration, there is no such process. There is a executive branch process, but there is no reporting requirement uh, to the Congress. It was it, w- Such reporting that was done was informal, low-key, kind of off the record. Uh, in the case of the development of the U-2 spy plane, uh, CIA notified one of the houses, I think it was the House of represent, no, the Senate, and did not inform the House. So when Francis Gary Powers was shot down, at least half of the Congress didn't even know we had a U-2. So things have changed. And we're going to get to that when we talk about accountability and the reforms of the 1970s. Yes? So you said we had um, an asset, Colonel Pankowski. Pankowski, yes. Pankowski. Um, did he not inform us about the missiles being brought into Cuba? like? N- not specifically, but he gave us the documentary um, uh, evidence, the manuals, which we were able to use in the uh, Uh, during the crisis Um, I'm told that when we received all this information we thought this is this is great but you know we're not we don't have a need for it and then the Cuban Missile Crisis happens and we have all of a sudden a need for it this is why intelligence officers try to collect everything even if it's not totally relevant at this time it may be an investment for something that happens in the future and the future is always uncertain What they had at the time, basically. They knew what they had, but they didn't know how relevant it was. Um, I mean, uh, uh, for a missile system that we don't expect to get close to, but it comes close to us, then it becomes relevant. Yeah. Matthew. Was there any objection made apparent to the CIA by the rebel forces in Cuba, the anti communist forces in Cuba, about choosing Bay of Pigs as their landing site for the operation? I don't believe they had any input into that sort of planning. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I think, as I understand covert action planning now, uh, we would uh, ask Cubans and locals uh, about the conditions of that place. It, the problem, the shortcomings there probably could have been easily remedied if they just brought in the the director of intelligence analysts onto that. And that's one reform that McCone had um, when he came into the directorship he made it a requirement that the analysts be brought in for operational planning of that sort. Joseph. Did anyone actually um, think the Cubans did bomb their own Air Force? Like, did the plane deception work? Or did people just see right through it as the US did no. it? No. No, remember uh, the requirement of covert action is uh, that the hand of the United States is not apparent or can be denied plausibly. And what is plausible is a, sometimes a matter of opinion uh, I don't think, given the publicity, that anybody doubted once the shooting started uh, who was behind it. If bombing the air force was so crucial, and we didn't like finish it the first time, right. and everyone is saying it was so crucial we should have done it, why wasn't it done, like the second airstrike? Like I said, you fall in love with your operation, and and uh, I won't ask for personal testimony to this, but uh, you, when you fall in love, you do you make dumb decisions sometimes. Um, I, I think it's true that CIA, and Bissell hints at it in his memoir, um, was afraid to tell the president. Um, and also, there was an unstated assumption on CIA's part that, yeah, if we don't get these airstrikes, we're, uh, the invasion can't succeed, but the president surely will not allow it to fail, so he will then involve the U.S. military. So that's an assumption on an assumption. And Kennedy uh, was not willing to go that far. So what we have here is a failure to communicate, (laughs) to coin a phrase. All right, Eric. Uh, What made Director McCone such a good uh, CIA director? He had um, been a founder of uh, what became U.S. Steel. He was a, a, a corporate manager. It was just far more efficient. Clear-headed, he um, also was a, a bit of a visionary. He created, or had created, the Directorate of Science and Technology, uh, which hadn't existed at that point. Um, I mean, there, there's a there's a, a long biography, a, a formerly classified biography on McCone that was uh, done by my uh, boss at CIA, the chief historian, David Robarge. And that has been uh, largely declassified and Available to you, uh, a, a good popular biography of I don't believe has ever been done, but uh, he was uh, he was only there for four years, but uh, he did a lot of uh, good things and, and really tried to get the place to clean up its act. Yeah. Um, you said that oh. uh, director or right got like three months to not resign until it was like reasonable. What about the Richard Bissell? Was he just kicked out right? um i think he was uh he left at the same time that um that dulles went he was offered another job within cia but he thought it would be a step down so he he was not interested in staying And then we had a question right behind um what was the obsession with castro from the well from jfk and from the attorney general like was it the closeness to the united states or was it the fear of communism just spreading all that I mean, uh, in, it, it, I've tried to give you a sense in this course that the Cold War was, was a deeply serious thing by the participants uh, and the leaders involved. Uh, there was a fear of uh, communism, an advance of communism anywhere is a defeat for freedom everywhere. And just as Eisenhower said, we're not going to tolerate a country-going communist, uh, Guatemala, <clears throat> uh, whatever the merits of that argument were, um, and Castro seemed to be worse, because he openly declared himself to be an ally of the Soviet Union. And that's that's the main enemy. That's the country we have to worry the most about. It's creating so much trouble for us in the world, threatening our allies. Have to do something. That was the thinking at the time. And it became personal. I think it became personal. So earlier in the course, we had discussed espionage and yep. um, assets and the handling of those assets. How did the handling of the case with the Soviet colonel end up? Uh, Not well. Uh, He was caught and there are different theories about uh, how he was caught whether it was poor tradecraft or um, um, or some other mistake that was that was made. Uh, But he was he was caught and executed. A lot of the uh, brave Soviets, Soviet citizens who worked for CIA during the Cold War um, met their fate, uh, a bullet in the back of the head in the Lubyanka prison, KGB prison in Moscow. Um, We have been able to get, uh, we talked about exfiltration, uh, many people out. But uh, some of the most prominent ones, uh, unfortunately, uh, were, were martyrs for the cause. Hey, follow oh, up real quick. Barbara and I, we just passed back and forth. If we're not mistaken, on one of the slides it said that we had oral debriefs with the colonel. Yes. How did, how did the CIA receive those oral debriefs if he was in Soviet Russia? Well, he, he got out occasionally. There's a great book uh, on him, uh, and it's called, you'll remember this title, it's called The Spy Who Saved the World because of the information he gave for the. Uh, let me get rid of this. This is uh, odious. Um, uh, the Spy Who Saved the World. And it's a story about Penkovsky. Um And in it, uh, it describes that he was uh, an influential, uh, for a colonel, he was pretty influential. He had some perks. He was part of a, a Soviet military trade mission to Britain. And he would go occasionally to the West, to Britain, I think, to Paris once. Um, and he would get away from his delegation and be met in a safe house by CIA and MI6 debriefers. So there were, there were extensive debriefings. And that book, uh, which is a great book, uh, reveals all that stuff. The, uh, there is a story that Penkovsky actually got to meet with Kennedy. Uh, that part of the history is not true. Uh, but he wanted he considered Pankofsky considered himself a soldier for democracy. And uh, to the point where he asked, can you dress me up in an uh, American colonel's uniform? And then a British colonel's uniform. So they, they did. And the thing, you, the things you do for your asset to keep them reporting, you'll, you'll do anything reasonable. Yeah. You know? Do we know what he is given in return for being an asset? I, I think it's in that book. Uh, but typically, uh, you know, you give them money, uh, but not enough so that they can expose themselves by conspicuous spending. We're always trying to keep, pre- preserve our assets' lives and telling them that they need to, you know put dial it back, you know. But um, I think we gave him, uh, I do know we gave him particular gifts uh, to give to his superiors, to curry favor. So they liked him, so that they would promote him, so they would give him good jobs. At one point, we gave him a um, a bottle of brandy, I think, that was doctored to make it look like it was the vintage year of the birth of his boss, uh, a Soviet general, uh, who just. <laughs> Love that you found this for me. Um, you know, we will, we will do these sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Okay, so next week, a quiz on Thursday, uh, and I'll see you next time we meet on Tuesday. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you you can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.